0: 3, 2, 1, roll the
1: footage.
0: Welcome back everybody! What if you could hang out with sprinters and ask them about their problems, their workflows and their solutions? That's exactly what we do here on the Strategy Sprints podcast. And today we'll explore with marketing titan and direct response expert Brian Kurtz, what it's like to work with the best copywriters on this planet, the eternal truths of direct marketing, what to retire from right now, what the next million dollar copywriter will be doing, successful pivots that he saw this year and so much more. Welcome everybody, Brian Kurtz. Oh, hey Simon! Great to
1: be here. I, lo- I love the I love the theme of your of the uh, of this the idea of strategy sprints. You know because, I you know I I just did a I just did a, a little boot camp because um, I, I sell um, uh, Breakthrough Advertising, which is a classic direct response marketing book written by Gene. There you go, Gene Schwartz.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one of the best books ever written, not just on copy or or marketing, but on human behavior and human nature and everything like that. And uh, we just did a boot camp, but we called it a quick start boot camp, which was like a sprint, a two week sprint through that book because the book is so dense. And I like the concept of, you know, sprinting through something, but getting deep as well, because then you can branch out afterwards. So I just love I love strategy sprints. I just I love that title
0: that means a lot thank you and what are you currently creating
1: you know i'm always creating something because i write every week i I have a weekly blog and i i'm always creating something in my mind because um you know life moves forward and being and and what i've learned from working with great copywriters is not necessarily that i became a great copywriter but i i became so mindful of everything around me where I never get writer's block. I'm always thinking about like, oh, I look at something, I go to the store and I see some behavior and I say, oh, that, that reminds me of something and how could I write about that and share my experience? Because my theory is that you know none of us have, has invented anything, but what we can do is put our spin on it, put our story on it, put our uh, experience on top of something that's already been invented, and then innovate off of that, and and share um, as much as we can off of that. And to me, that that's the that's the key. And and so when I when I share something, um, what I mean, I'm, I said I'm always working on something. When I share something, I'm very clear about that. I didn't invent it, but maybe this concept, maybe something from my book or something from that I've written about before, that's a eternal truth of direct marketing that you might not have understood, but once I put my spin on it, I put my story on it, I put my explanation on it, and then you get it where you didn't get it before, that, I feel like then my job is done because now I become the messenger for that concept or for that idea for you. And so, you know, it's like, who do you wanna be a hero to? And I wanna be a hero to anybody who wants to learn the essentials of direct response marketing as told by me. That doesn't mean I have all the answers. It doesn't mean that I'm right. It doesn't mean that you only have to have my explanation. So it's a long-winded answer to the question of what am I up to? But it's, it's basically I'm up to just sharing wisdom based on my experience. And if you get it from me and you hadn't gotten it before, that that's just a huge win every time. And I love, I love that about teaching and educating. Um, And as Jay Abraham, who wrote the forward to my book and who's one of my mentors says, you know, if you did it, you have a responsibility to teach it. And so I'm trying to teach everything I've learned, you know, while, you know, not being on reruns all the time and but then you know you, you can 't have purposeful reruns, and that 's okay too.
0: you run masterminds on, um, on the Titan accelerator, and you are also part of masterminds uh, what's the what's the power of masterminds from your experience
1: god I tell you without without masterminds or accountability groups or being able to have feedback loops in your life—it's—it's it's bigger than masterminds. It's the idea of always having um, feedback loops to run your ideas through and have other people's ideas run through you. And so the the you know masterminds I guess were kind of invented so to speak by Napoleon Hill back in the 1920s. But the way masterminds are run today. Um, You know very specific masterminds you have one on memberships and one on launches and one on um, uh, you know uh, anything Um, mine is just direct response multi-channel marketing but it's it's um, they're so critical because anytime you have an idea to not be able to run it through at least some filters of people who are like-minded to you, who who are um, uh, not just that they think like you, but that they have an experience that's similar to yours, so they can give you at least some feedback that you can use or not use. I'm not saying you have to take everybody's opinion, but masterminds are so important. And then beyond that, I mean, even if you don't, not in a formal mastermind. So I have two masterminds. One is lower priced. It's... Um, it's all virtual, uh, 250 members plus, and we have calls and we have hot seats and we have all sorts of stuff in that. And then my other mastermind, which is 30 leading direct response companies, uh, and that one, um, you know, is much more expensive, but it's much more. We go a lot deeper into into more detailed topics. But then, one of the um, one of one of the things I do is that I I spend over $100,000 a year in other people's masterminds to learn the things that I don't know. And you always know don't know everything. Uh, you always have to be a student and a teacher all the time. And so the masterminds that I'm in, I'm looking for skills. I'm looking for knowledge in areas where, you know, I'm not the smartest person in the room. In fact, in some cases, I could be the dumbest person in the room. But I'm really just enjoying learning from experts in a particular area, so I'm in, I'm in um, one mastermind that specializes in launches, one that specializes in, you know, networking and 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 uh, and connecting. So it's it's great to spend, and you have to pay to play. You got to be in mastermind groups and be willing to pay to be in them. And then mine, I mean, you know, you, you need to pay to play in mine too. But the, 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 what you get back is is it's priceless because you're getting feedback from experts and, and people that you'd never connect with. You can't do it alone. You can't sit alone in your room thinking you have all the ideas and you can get everything you need. And even if you're not going to join a mastermind or you don't have masterminds, you should always have accountability groups. Small groups of four and five people that you get together with either on Zoom or or in person, and you get together and hot seat each other, and everybody gives a challenge or an opportunity in their business, and you challenge each other, and you be accountable to each other. And that, that is something that is universal for everybody, even if you're not going into paid mastermind. So masterminding is a broad concept, but it, it's, it's so critical uh, for so many things to be successful in business.
0: One of the things that you have been thinking a lot about in your masterminds is pivoting, because this is the year of pivot for everybody. And uh, you run a mastermind about direct response, multi-channel marketing. I run a mastermind about B2B sales. We are both in many masterminds where we pay to play and to stay sharp. What have you seen working in pivoting to digital, in pivoting to this funky year that we are in?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, pivots the word of the year, right? But I, when I, um, so I have two masterminds. So one of them, Titans Accelerator, was virtual pre-COVID. So, I mean, I I always say I predicted COVID, right? Because I I launched it in December of 2019, not knowing we were going to be in a pandemic in 2020. Because I always wanted to do a virtual mastermind. Because my other mastermind, I I do three extensive live events a year. It's not just it's not just the cost of live events, but it's the uh, it's the um, uh, you know the logistics and, and getting it all together and the hotels and the food and all of that. So I, I love live events. There's nothing that can beat live to to Zoom, but I realized that to get more access to more people around the world, and and I wanted to do something much more international as well. I realized that having a virtual mastermind on Zoom would be outstanding. Something that I can do, I can teach, I can have, I can scale it very quickly. Whereas my other mastermind, which is very high end, it's $20,000, 25000 a year. I needed an intimate group of, of no more than 30 companies. I even, I, I, I have a ceiling of 30 companies and that one, I want to do three intense live events a year for two and a half days and just go deep in, in everything direct marketing. So as far as pivoting in both of those things, so I pivoted in both because my, my sense is that entrepreneurs and, and business owners um, don't have to pivot when things change because they're on a constant pivot. Um, because being an entrepreneur and being a business owner, you always have to think ahead a few steps anyway. So if you're always thinking about pivoting then if something happens the pivot doesn't even feel like a pivot it's just changing within the environment because your mind is set for pivoting uh, I'm using pivot I'm using the word pivot too much but it is the word of the year so in the in the virtual mastermind in december of 2019 i launched it i got about 150 members immediately and the the the, the benefit of the program was one live call with me a month for like two hours. We would do, we would do hot seats. We would have discussions. I'd maybe get a guest speaker now and then. And then I, I, um, I, I create other content. I do some interviews that I load up content for them in a portal. And then once a month I'd send them a USB with all the content from the month, including the live call. Well, COVID hit in March of 2020. And, uh, I just made an immediate pivot. I said, look, I'm going to be home. Instead of doing a monthly call, why don't I do weekly calls? You know, just over deliver on the benefit. And that was just so natural, you know. You are are on on brand. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So it was such a natural thing to do that it wasn't even a pivot. It was like, okay, I'm going to do weekly calls. And, and it wasn't that difficult because, look, I can always create content with hot seats and discussions. But then I had all these speakers available. Everybody else was home. So everybody who's in my, in my network, uh, who I get to speak at my events, I just did weekly calls and had everybody, you know, come on every week. And some weeks we had a speaker, some weeks we didn't. And it was incredible. I mean, I basically... It, what it led to was a year later, it led to a 70% plus renewal rate because I totally overdelivered on what I was going to do. Now, the problem with overdelivery is that you know if you overdeliver and then you do something different that's not quite the same overdelivery, people will say, what are you doing for me lately? So I had to re I had to back off on the pivot from weekly calls to now it's settled in. I'm not doing, I'm not going back to monthly calls now that we're, getting past COVID, but I'm doing at least two or three calls a month. So it the the, the benefit of the program just expanded and it became the program. So the, the pivot to a new room is also part of pivoting. Um, now on my other mastermind, which were three live events a year, um, in May of 2020, I just canceled the event. I was going to go virtual, but I didn't know what to do for virtual. And I didn't I just I just extended the membership and I did office hours with the members and just over delivered any way I could via Zoom. And then in uh, in September, I did uh, an event on um, on Zoom uh, instead because I couldn't go live. This was last September. And what I did was I also didn't charge them for the event. So I didn't count the event against their membership. So I extended their membership gave them the, the event sort of for free as a freebie to kind of go for a, a virtual event and see how powerful it was. And it was powerful. I mean, I had great speakers, again, getting great speakers when everybody's home was a lot easier. I get great speakers when I'm live, but with virtual, it was even easier. And and then I had, um, you know, I realized this this was just as good as, as a live event in terms of the value of the program. So then in January, I did another virtual event for that mastermind and I counted it toward their membership. And I just did one earlier this month, same thing. I counted it toward their membership. And then this September, we're going live again. So, you know, I, I might've had a couple of people not renew because we weren't live, but not the majority. So I kept all the members intact basically. And so in both cases, master, uh, uh, um, uh, a virtual mastermind that stayed virtual, but I enhanced the benefits. And then a live mastermind that I went virtual, enhanced the value of the membership by adding events and all of that. Um, you know, I guess those were pivots of sorts, but they were really just, you know, rolling with the punches, seeing what I could over-deliver, seeing what else I could do for them at the time. Now, I will say that the biggest pivots I've seen in the world that I'm in outside of my masterminds and the masterminds I'm in is, is the big pivot to virtual big events. You know, I've seen that the, um, you know, I'm talking about the enrollment events where you have a three-day event where you're selling at the event, but you also have great speakers and content and you could have a thousand, two thousand, or in the case of Tony Robbins, he had 23,000 people virtually. And what I found in, in researching it and get, hearing presentations about it is that the the virtual events actually were more profitable. They had much higher profit margin because, again, the pivot was to do, over-deliver on everything that you did with a live event and keep him, keep people engaged. And you could do multiple events then. You could do... You get much more international participation. So, And you don't have food and beverage and you don't have hotel. Um, so you can spend money on big swag boxes that you can ship to everybody in advance. So you reallocate your expenses to make uh, the event a virtual event with a lot more than you would have done if it was just you know something on Zoom. And what I've seen is that the move I don't know, now that we're going back to live, I think it's going to be a mixture now. I think everybody has developed a new capability in virtual events that is not going back. You're not going to put that back in a box. You know, they are, everybody's into it. And so it reminds me of Dan Sullivan, who's who's the best coach for entrepreneurs in the world. And I'm in his group, a strategic coach. And he has this thing called the four C's. And you can run anything through the four C's, and it, any project, any sis, so you 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 run the idea of going from a live event to a virtual event through the four C's. So the four, the first C is commitment. You make a commitment to doing a virtual event from a live event. Then the second C is courage, and courage is a shitty place because you got to go through a lot of crap to get to to learn how to do it and and figure out. How it's going to work, and will it work, and all the questioning that you have, and that's the courage phase. And then the third C is the um, uh, capability phase, that you actually have a new capability in virtual events, and then and then you make another commitment to, you know, another another. Um, actually, I, I missed the C. It, it, it's capability and. Um,
0: is it competence that
1: then you learn yeah, how, it's how it's to do it? Um, but anyway, it, 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 right? You have a new, um, a, a new skill that you can take to the next level, and then you would make another commitment after that. So it's a, it's a it's a circular thing, but it's it's just um, you can run anything through the four C's. And Dan's a genius when he when he put that together. But I think it shows that that it it starts with a commitment to something new to something different or a pivot or whatever and you know once you get through the courage phase you get and you get those new capabilities it's it's phenomenal
0: and i like the yin and yang your book is called over the liver and it's about going all in and um, we 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 feel your passion right now through the ether through the distance that you go all in you you are very passionate about what you do and I, I I guess this is only possible because you have also this other um, balancing uh, thing, your concept of retirement, retiring from the wrong things. So because you cannot over deliver everywhere, right? Uh, can you unpack your concept of retirement?
1: Yeah. Um, so I it's actually, uh, I got it from Dan Sullivan as well, but it's like, I, I basically, I, I, I decided that you need everybody needs to eventually retire from things you don't do well. You need to retire from things you don't like to do, and you need to retire from hanging out with people you don't want to hang around with. So, based mm-hmm. on that definition of retirement, I'm reti- I'm, I'm like eighty percent retired right now. But I'm working hard. I mean, I'm I'm working every day, and I'm my work is my play. So. It's 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 not really work, but I'm I'm not retired in the traditional sense, and so the way to get there, the way to get to retiring from things you don't do well, retiring from things you don't like to do, and retiring from people you don't want to hang around with, um, it comes from a um in my in my case anyway, it comes from a career of over delivery, and by over delivery, what I'm saying is that you always it's not about networking, it's not about Accumulating people in your life—it's about contributing to everybody in your life. So, for 40 years in business, I have constantly figured out ways to just continually contribute to the people around me with no expectation of return. And what you get is a much bigger return that way. It so happens um, because you're you're always over delivering at a hundred zero. And I have all this, and it's all it's all in the book. But it's about delivering at a hundred zero. Where you know you have no expectation of a return, and if you don't get a return from something you do in an over delivery capacity, my 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 sense is that I believe in serendipitous return. So that you're putting out good karma in the world in terms of over delivery and contribution, and if it doesn't come back directly, it comes back indirectly from somewhere else. At least that's been my experience over forty years, and so I think that. Um, I guess the results speak for themselves, not that I'm the most successful person in the world and I'm not bragging or anything like that, but it's been a life of, of constant, um, of, of gratefulness of the things that come back to me in spades from having a philosophy of over-delivery and then, you know, working in with the goal of, you know, not doing things I'm, I'm, Try not to do the things I'm not good at. Try not to do the things I don't like. Now, again, when you're younger, you've got to do more things you don't like. You've got to do more things that are not your your strength. Um, but as, you, as time goes on, to me, that's the goal of freedom. You know, money doesn't buy you freedom. Mo- money doesn't buy you happiness. Money buys you freedom. And then the freedom to choose what you want to do, when you want to do it, and who you want to be with, that is – to me, the essence of being a successful entrepreneur, a successful business person. So I tried to connect the over delivery with the retirement. I never had that that question asked to me that way. So thank you for that. But it, they are connected because, and that, and again, the, again, you always have that that risk of of the the risks of over delivery. That you know, people expectations are set too high, so that when you over deliver, over deliver at this level, at a high level, and then you come down a little bit and you still over deliver. They will say, "What are you doing for me lately?" And I, I would rather have that problem than just constantly being mediocre and under delivering. So every once in a while, someone might leave my mastermind, or they'll, they'll, they'll be unsatisfied with something I offer them because I offered them so much more last time when I was over-delivering more. And okay, I can live with that, you know, but I can't live with not delivering and over-delivering at the outset at all because, you know, life is about contribution. Contribution is the key word for me.
0: And it's about also, you create something in the relationship, it changes both. When you say, I am risking, it has to do with courage. When you say I am risking to maybe not over deliver, I am risking to raise the bar, to raise the standard right now, then you you also have a ripple effect on the other side. Also Absolutely. the other side will not be just cool and say, Okay, yeah, that's it's one of my many masterminds. Then we say, Hey, he is in the game, he has skin in the game, I I am I am going to do something about it. This this means something. That's right. It can go wrong. It's important.
1: That's right. And you know what? You can't. You can't go. I mean, I say. You know the the problems of over delivery. It, it it it's not really a problem because you know the worst case is that you over deliver too much and then under deliver because you didn't over deliver the same. How is that bad? You know, it's someone is might be unsatisfied and that's okay. Um, it's not because you were trying to unsatisfied to be un to to to, to disappoint them. I'm never consciously trying to disappoint somebody. I'm sure you, you don't need, Nobody does. So, uh, I, I'm, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a big believer in, and it is, it is a two way street. So, I mean, I totally agree with that. Totally.
0: We have experienced when we changed our offer and we said, we are going to guarantee that we double your revenue in, in the this print. And everybody on the team was like, Simon, can we really promise that? Just because it happened uh, doesn't mean that we will deliver it every time. And I was like, you know what? If we don't believe in the product, first, we shouldn't do it, right? And uh, if if we see that it does work, we will be very, very motivated to improve the product. And this is the way a team should think about the product. We are on our toes.
1: Yes. The, the one thing I, I, in that, I, I, wrote, I wrote about this in a blog recently. The one thing that, I, that, I, that, that entered my head when you were talking about that is the whole concept of done for you, which I am not a fan of. No matter how much I over deliver, no matter how much I want to I I do stuff for you, um, done for you is just a bad, I think it's a bad model because I think everybody has to have skin in the game. You know, and everybody has to I mean, done with you is 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 good done doing. I I think do it yourself isn't great and done for you isn't great. It's some version of done with you. And that's why coaching is so important. You know, um, Dan Sullivan, again, said that, you know, what management was to the 1980s, coaching is to today. Um, I also say I put management in with consulting you know, management, consulting versus coaching. Coaching is such a – and coaching is such a key concept in business. That's why we have so many masterminds. Masterminds are just coaching groups in some cases. It's basically adding the, the, uh, the, the instruction manual, as it, as it was, to what you've delivered. Um, but the idea of saying, I'm going to do this for you, soup to nuts – I'm I'm just not a fan of that because you're you're just you're just you're just um, putting yourself in a situation where um, you're destined to have disappointment when you say I'm going to do it all for you. Uh, and again, it's not a cop out. I mean, I'm not saying I'm lazy to not do it all for you, but I'll tell you, doing it with you is so much better because then you get much more satisfaction as well as the client. So. Um, I'm just not a done-for-you kind of guy.
0: Yeah, it brings the other, the other side in a very passive situation and it's right. half the fun for everybody. Right, exactly. Because you learn by doing, not by getting stuff done for you, right?
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: And um, I am curious, what are you excited about in your field now looking forward?
1: Well, you know, I'm excited about the building. I mean, just everything that that gets taught or learned and then what the next step on that is. So, you know, when we had quiz funnels from Ryan Levesque, what's the next level of list segmentation? What's the next level? Uh, When, you know, Jeff Walker has product launch formula and you do a launch and then you do a live launch on Facebook and then you do um, uh, a webinar launch and then you And 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 then, you know, video sales letters, how they've evolved into so much more. So it's basically I'm always excited about how things evolve um, from an initial idea. And that's why, you know, that's why getting to the root, the root cause, the the original source of everything is so important because everything builds on some original eternal truth. That you can keep building and building on and building on. Um, I'm also very interested. I mean, I'm interested in how the uh, the next level of live and 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 virtual uh, live and virtual events are going to commingle. I don't believe in in I don't believe in hybrid events necessarily. A hybrid event would be a live event with a live stream. That's not a hybrid event. And to do a true hybrid event will be will be tougher. Um, but I'm curious how that's going to play out. I'm also very interested in the concept of that that I was taught by a friend of mine, Jason Fladley, and he came up with this thing called the e-class. And what an e- class was, in his mind, was the idea you sell somebody a book and then the e- class walks them through the book in a series of webinars. And then I realized that's that's a short course, like a, a sp- and going back to your concept of sprint, right? So the idea of a boot camp, a quick start boot camp, which is a sprint through a book, chapter by chapter. I love, I love the, and and all that is, is like, you know, it could be, I mean, you could have a course, but then you could, the idea of short courses are going to be so valuable. Not because people have a shorter attention span, which they do, but it's just that, you know, getting to the brass tacks in a shorter amount of time and then build on that with the bigger coaching group mastermind or something else for the long term. So I love, I love the idea of using all the things we've talked about on this, on this call, but, but combining them and rejiggering them from a short thing to a longer thing from a, from a, a, um, a quick deep dive to a longer deep dive. Um, But in all cases, it's never, it, it never can be shallow. It always has to go a mile deep before you go a mile wide. You want to go, keep going deeper and deeper into whatever topic you're obsessed about. Um, And whether you do it in a two-week sprint or a five-year mastermind program, it's still the same principle.
0: I wish I would have found your body of work 10 years ago because when I started as an entrepreneur, my thinking was, hey, build a good product, the rest will happen. And so I did build good products. I did knew nothing about copywriting. Nobody bought the products. And um, now, much later, um, I think differently about this. I I care a lot about my list and segmenting my list, and then also about the product. But it has shifted in, in yeah. ways. What's your thinking?
1: Yeah, that, I mean that's a that's like that, that's a shift that 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 should be part of every marketer's thinking that. You know, I, I have in the book, I talk about the 41-39-20 rule, which is, the, it, it's based on the 40-40-20 rule, which is that uh, in any direct marketing program, the success of a program is basically 40% list, 40% offer, 20% creative and messaging. Now, I made it the 41-39-20 rule because I wanted the list to be the most important. Your list, your audience is the most important thing. Absolutely. And the reason is that, Um, when, when you're looking at a a copywriter can't create desire in the marketplace, the desire is already there. The copywriter is channeling it. So you have to know where the desire is, where the state, the, and as Gene Schwartz talks about in breakthrough advertising, where the states of awareness are in your audience. So you can, you can write to them at different levels of awareness based on where they are in terms of your product if you start with a product for everybody that's not going to get you anywhere so the so you if you once you get your list dialed in and you get an offer dialed in it sounds like the creative which is 20% remember and the list was 41 and the offer was 39 that the list is half as important the creative the 20% is half as important it's not i say the creative is the least important until it's not And what I mean by that, once you have the list and the offer dialed in, then you bring the world-class copywriting, the world-class creative to it, and that is direct marketing nirvana because now that's where you get the biggest lifts with creative and messaging, but it's based on developing the list and your offer first. And so that's a very important distinction. The order that you do things makes a huge difference and it, it might be the difference between success and failure as well. And so, you know, and, and, and the proof is that you can if you have a perfect list like let's say you have let's say you say have a product, right? And and you found the perfect list for it, and you did an affiliate to that list, or you or you mailed to that list or whatever, and with mediocre creative and an offer that was just standard, you'd make some money because there was a match between the audience and your product. However, if you write the, the best creative package for that product from the best copywriter in the world, and then you mailed it to a list that was not applicable, you get zero orders, you won't make any money at all. So that's, the, that's why you differentiate between you know, list, offer, creative in that order. But you've got to get all three. It's a three legged stool of marketing. They're all important. And just because you make the creative the twenty of the other two, half the other two, does not mean it's less important. It's that you have to get to it in the right at the right time, with the right approach, with the right copywriter, which could be you. Could be you know, you could be the best you could be your best copywriter. But the copy and the messaging has to come after you've got your list solid and your offer solid.
0: This is exactly my next question. Uh, should I be doing the copywriter as a CEO or not? In in which size, in which maturity level? I will ask you this after one word from our sponsors. Hey, if you love what you are hearing, you will love our free masterclasses.
1: Go grab them at strategysprints.com. Because
0: most people listening, they are... Owners of very small businesses. They have three people, five people. Should they do their own copywriting?
1: So it's it, it's not a yes or no answer. And I've written about it. It's, it's, I, I blogged about it quite a bit. And it started, I, blog, I did a blog once and I said it, it was confessions of a copywriter wannabe. That's what I see. I see myself as a copywriter wannabe. And um, I wrote the blog post and it was an interesting blog post. And I had a guy write to me from my list and he said, From my online family, and he said to me, um, "Brian, you know, basically, you're full of it. You know, everything in your blog is says you're a copywriter. Just the way that you weave the story, the way that you actually came at the bottom. I think I had an offer and the PS for breakthrough advertising or something. So, but it was not. And I realized I was not being manipulative. I was not thinking like that. But I realized then that." What, what 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 then? Then I followed up with some copy, some blogs after that. That sometimes you are your best own copywriter. If you if you work in a niche, like I know a guy, Will Hamilton. He's got he owns the tennis niche online, right? And he's studied a lot of copywriters. He might have even hired one at one point. But when he got went a mile deep into tennis and tennis instruction on the internet he became, there was nobody that could write copy for that better than him. So in that case, if he didn't write the copy, he probably would get inferior copy. So he is his best copywriter for a niche that he owns in the marketplace. That's, a, that's, that, that's one extreme. The other extreme is that, you know, you're in the supplement business and you've written sometimes about supplements and you've written about health and things like that but you know that there's somebody better out there that can do it at a much deeper level than you and you're better off being interviewed by a great copywriter one of the best one of the best attributes of a copywriter is that they're great interviewers so you get a great copywriter to interview you so you could get your brain onto the paper but through someone else's pen and that's usually the better way to go because you know copywriting is not easy it's it's not a commodity um, it's something that comes that, that that takes a lot of time and training. That's why I call myself a copywriter wannabe because I never could thought of myself being able to write a promotion from beginning to end and actually it being it being effective. But I realized that if 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 someone interviewed me about what I was trying to sell and what I was trying to um, write about, that is the next best thing. And so. To answer your question, it's not a yes or no whether you should be be your own copywriter. Now, some entrepreneurs who are listening to this might have started as a copywriter. It's going to be hard to let go of that. You know, as you build your business and you have to worry about personnel and you have to worry about product development and inventory and, and accounting and finance, you might not have time to do the copywriting. But if you're the best copywriter and you started as a copywriter, you might want to spend more time on the copywriting and then and then um, delegate some of those other duties, which are probably not your strength anyway. The best example is Agora Publishing. Agora is the largest financial newsletter publisher in the world, a billion and a half size business. It was started by a guy named Bill Bonner, friend of mine, um, back in the back in seven late '70s, early '80s. And Bill was a copywriter. And so he started Agora. And, you know, he had no interest in running the business. And he it took him a long time to find the right, like, independent owners of the different silos of the business to be able to run correctly, have them run correctly. But he just wanted to write. And he had to get involved in, obviously, Big decisions for the company and investing and all of that, but interestingly, he stayed pretty true to what he wanted to do, and and so that's a situation where the business got too big, and he either had to give up copywriting or make sure he had somebody running the business while he was co- writing the copy. And so it's not as simple as that because his business got so big, he's not even you know writing for everything now, or you know he's he's not retired, but he's certainly. Um, a company has a has a mind of its own in a way but just to to talk he's a perfect example of somebody who you know knew that his his secret superpower his secret sauce was copywriting and if anybody listening if their secret sauce is copywriting then you might want to stay with the copywriting in your business as it gets bigger but you've got to get the other stuff covered and I think you know, to, to go to cover that and then find copywriters who might not be as good as you, then you, then you're, then you're off in both areas. You traded a strength to fill a weakness and it's, it's not going to work. So you have to make decisions based on your aptitudes as a business owner or an entrepreneur. Um, so this, again, I didn't really answer the question because there's no answer, but I think that there are a lot of situations where a business owner entrepreneur can be the copywriter and it might be the best way to run the company. Um, Or they can, they're, they're a good copywriter, a competent copywriter, which means they probably can find someone better than themselves and they should figure out what they do best, what their unique ability is. That's from Dan Sullivan as well. What your unique ability is in your business and be able to, do that, whatever that is, whether it's copywriting, finance, um, product development, just being a visionary um, for the business. But you've got to make a decision then: what you're going to do and what you're not going to do in the business. And you got to hire the best. You got to hire the best and the brightest around the corner, and not and not let have everything be run by you because then you'll be a bottleneck for everything.
0: How fast can we test good copy? Because when you were at Boardroom and you hired copywriters, sometimes you had a 100% difference in impact when you did hit the right one. Today, I guess you can test even faster uh, if a mail works, if a, a collateral works. How fast can we test? How do you test?
1: Yeah, that's a good question because when I made the transition from direct mail to online, I mean, it was to me, I was a kid in the candy store. This is great. I mean, I don't have to wait 12 weeks to, to decide which which package won, A or B. Um, I could decide much quicker. But the danger of online testing is that you still need statistical significance. And so what happens is that, and I think I, I've written about this, I think it might be an overdeliver also. That I remember when I did my first online launch that I had I was doing the launch in real time. Like I was testing in real time. So I was running two offers at at you know right in the middle of the launch. And so the guy who's running the launch for me, not a career direct marketer, not a guy who is who is steeped in the in the fundamentals of statistical significance, was looking at the test results and he goes, Brian, look at this. We've got 12 orders for the offer at I don't know $99 and I've got eight orders at for the offer at $7 at, 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 at $79 we got a winner so it's not a winner it's it's 12 orders and seven orders on a on a $99 product you have to understand the fundamentals of testing before you can say how fast or how slow but you need to know what the metric that you need to find so in other words, I mean, Dick Benson, who was my, my guru in direct mail, used to say for a $39 offer that we were selling in books and newsletters, he said you needed at least 100 net orders to even begin to know whether something won or not. So you needed 100 net orders minimum on either side of a test. So you got to start with whatever you need in terms of number of orders, if you're testing price you know what's the difference in price and what's the difference in in profit when you when you put it into a spreadsheet so the answer to your question is that you can obviously online you can test so much faster but that doesn't mean you have to be sloppy about it and you can't be sloppy about it because then you'll call the wrong control the wrong control we had it in direct mail we had we had situations where we had two packages in direct mail one got a very high front-end response and 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 lower pay-up, and another one had lower, lower front-end response and higher pay-up. What does that mean? Well, it means that the one with higher front-end response, say a 5% front-end response and a 20% pay-up, might look better than something that has a 2% front-end response and a, I don't know, a 40% pay-up. But the thing is... You could you might have to take that out to the second year to the renewal to figure out which package won, because the the how you sell is how you how people respond. And if you sell a certain way, they're only going to respond a certain way and they'll renew a certain way. So, you know, testing could go out two years before you have a, a legitimate call on a control. But you have to make decisions much faster than that and you make them as you go along, but you keep all of your data so you can switch back when you find new information uh, six months, a year down the road. So testing is a very complicated topic, and I just like glanced over like 20 years worth of experience of testing in, 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 in three minutes, but I uh, hope I wasn't confusing with that.
0: I love it because we do this with every client trying to find out how, how which numbers to look at and uh, how to look at them. It's so important. Yeah. So w- w- with emails, for example, we, we, we help people slice in, in chunks of 1000 emails. And I'm curious um, if, if this is profound from your perspective. We, we slice 1000 email and uh, and then we check click rate um unsubscribe rate and um uh, open rate uh, and so we we have them send daily emails for for in in a sprint and then after 30 days we go in there and kill the 10% losers that's how uh, month after month they have a set of good emails that they know work for this segment right what do you what do you think
1: about it? Is it, it is it... It, it it's a way? It, there's a lot of different ways. With email, it's a lot more complicated because it's constant. It's you know you're getting data coming in all the time. But that I mean that that makes sense. What you just said, I, I would I would be careful though about um, first of all when you're doing thousand name segments, make sure it's not a thousand today and then a thousand tomorrow with the other test. Make sure you're your your A being it so the first name gets gets test A the second name gets we used to call that nth name so that you you basically have a cross section uh, so you're not you you don't have biases based on time of day or or geography if you're doing across the uh, across the country um, so you have to have you got to you got to work in whatever biases or get whatever biases out um, but I think that you know you want it depends what, and it also depends what you're looking for. I mean, some people are only looking for orders. They don't care about click rates. They don't care about open rates. You know, uh, Ben Settle, who's an expert in, in uh, email marketing, came up with 12 things that are more important than open rates when it comes to email. Um, now, open rate, you got to get it open to have some something happen, of course, but an, a low open rate, With a huge engagement rate of different kinds of engagement and not just clicks, but clicks to a response to a question or engagement will create the order, not just the open. So um, it sounds like you're combining good, good data and then throwing out what's not good. And that's always that's always uh, valid. So I'm not I'm not questioning the validity of what you just said. I'm just saying that, you know, everything is working together. It's never one thing. And basically, open rates are overrated when it comes to email. Just like in direct mail, Nixies are overrated. So a Nixie in direct mail means it's an undeliverable address, right? So imagine a list that you mail out. Let's say you're mailing two lists in direct mail, 5,000 names each. And the first list has half of them are nixies they're undeliverable but the 2500 that get delivered get a 10% response rate but the and the other 5000 has only a 10% nixie rate but your response rate on the 90% is like you know 2% now you realize that the deliverability wasn't the issue it was the response rate on the names that got delivered and, and so things like that it's subtle I mean, you don't want you don't want 50 percent of your list not to be delivered. Obviously, that's that's not that's not conducive to making money. However, it could be better than a high deliverability and low response or engagement. So everything has to be worked together. And I think that's what you were saying. And I agree with what you said.
0: And this leads me to my last question. Uh, How important is it to have the ecosystem, to nurture the ecosystem versus just go for the hit? Uh, But having people around and having these just starting conversations that we can nurture a different point and something else will emerge later. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know that's a softball question because you know where, where we both stand on that. But, you know, having an ecosystem that not just nurtures you in terms of people you can go to with masterminds and accountability groups and all of that. But an ecosystem that is consistent and congruent, I talk about that a lot in Overdeliver, that if, if everything you do is consistent and congruent, that's going to lead to much more learned long-term success than a bunch of quick hits one at a time. And so I'm in it for the long haul it's playing the long game. In fact, that's the subtitle of the book, playing the long game in direct response marketing, right? It's, you know, how to build a business for the long, for the long game. Um, and the way to do that is congruency and consistency. I'll give you a good example. You know, in, in, um, in online marketing and, and, and email marketing, the sexy part is call going after, you know, converting cold traffic. That's like a big, Buzzword, going out to names that don't know you, a list that doesn't know you, and getting them to buy from you—it's exciting, right? You got to do incredible marketing, and you got to sell, sell, sell. Well, I would add a, a little, a little um, uh, caveat to that. Yeah, it's it's, it's sexy, sure, um, but you have to go out to cold traffic and go out to for that in that first that first promotion or that first order, knowing what the second order is going to be and the third order and the fourth order. And so if you go out to that, that sexy cold traffic with the second order in mind, you're going to do much better, obviously, because the second order and the third order is what is what really will build your business. And so it's really, I mean, I I stress this in my book and I stress it everywhere that I go that the, the real sexy part of marketing for me is the continuous, continuous, is the continuous uh, service? It's renewals. It's the cross sells and the upsells. But cross sells and upsells that aren't just pounding people over the head with pop-ups. It's it's congruent offers that tie into the original offer. So you're building a you're building a. I love the word. I'm glad you use the word ecosystem. You're building an ecosystem within your business, whether you want to call it a funnel or not. I don't care. I'm not a big funnel guy. I've been doing funnels for 40 years, but it's now funnels are sell, 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 sell. It's not just that; it's moving people through an ecosystem, through everything that you have, and not selling everything at the same time, not selling everything um, immediately. You know, there's a way to fish without a hook and bait. You can just deliver content and deliver content, and then come in with a sales pitch that ties into what you've been delivering and content. That's what, that's what product launch formula is all about delivering content that's valid and, and meaningful that will lead to a sale so that you don't have to get a, get a fish on a hook as opposed to the fish just jumping in the boat. And that's, you know, that's a philosophy. And when you said ecosystem and said, I, I first thought about, masterminds having people around you that can having a staff that really understands your mission and your vision that's one ecosystem and the other ecosystem would be a consistent and congruent philosophy in your business that goes from first order to last order first order to second order to third order to fourth order to last order everything is consistent everything is a, is a unique whole under an umbrella of, you know, I'm not saying you have to have a a concrete mission statement to be successful, but you have to have a vision statement. You have to have a, what are you really trying to do on the customer journey?
0: I could go on forever talking these things with you and we will continue this conversation. But for this context right here, I'm coming to an end after 56 minutes of an amazing intense conversation with you that felt like two minutes. And, uh, my question is, did I forget to ask you anything?
1: No, you know, I, I, I go on a lot of podcasts and I never know where it's going to go as you and I discussed before you turn the record button on. And, um, this went in some interesting directions because you, I mean, I, I loved I love the, uh, I love the linkage of the retirement conversation and the over delivery conversation. Um, so after you did that, anything you did was gravy because you already did something unique in a podcast that I never heard before. As far as, you know, what if, if people want to, um, you know, get more of my propaganda, um, they can go to um, overdeliverbook.com. Um, that site is the site itself is incredible. It's it's got priceless uh, bonuses um, from the best copywriters, the best marketers in the world, Jay Abraham, Gary Bensavenga, Dan Kennedy, Perry Marshall—all free. You just go there. It, it, you you go buy the book off that site, and then you come back to the site. You download everything on that site. If even if you don't want to buy the book or 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 get the bonuses, just check it out. I think you'll be blown away. So it's Overdeliverbook.com, and then you'll get on my. It, you'll become a member of my online family. And that's where I blog every week and that's where I, um, I really, um, and that's, you know, you started the conversation with what, you know, what am I up to? And, and it's like, you know, I, I like to write every week to my, to my online family and uh, my, my blog, I don't do affiliates. I don't do, I don't sell. I only, you know, talk about educational materials that I might be sponsoring. Um, So, and it's, it's all content. And so if you go to overdeliverbook.com, you get the book, you get all the bonuses, you get on my list and you become part of my online family. If you don't want to spend the $25 for the book and still get on my, become part of my online family, just go to briankurtz.net and uh, B-R-I-A-N-K-U-R-T-Z.net. And you opt in uh, to my list, my online family, and um, we can stay in touch that way and Hopefully, you'll engage with me. You can email me right from my blog anytime. And so I do engage with my audience because to me, I already said it, open rates are overrated, right? It's engagement. And I if I'm not going to engage with my online family, then why have one is my, is my opinion.
0: Beautiful. And now you can pass the baton. Who should be my next guest?
1: Your next guest. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know who you've... Uh, who you've uh, interviewed, but there are a bunch of people that I mentioned in passing on during this call. Um, Somebody that would be very interesting would be Jason Fladlian who does the e-class and webinars. He's a, he's a dynamite. Um, He'd be a dynamite guest. I don't know if you'd be able to get him or not. I think that you could get um, someone like a Ben settle um, to talk about email marketing. He'd be tremendous. Um, you know, if you wanted to get a great copywriter, uh, there are so many of them. But even I, I would I would go for a guy like Kevin Rogers, who he he has a, a, a thing, a membership called Copy Chief, where he trains copywriters. And I think getting into that next step, because you asked the question about, you know, should we be our own copywriter? Go to one of the people who train copywriters like Kevin Rogers or uh, Kira Hoog and, and Rob Marsh. They have the Copywriter Club um Joanna Weeby is a has as copy hackers and she does teaches. So i going to somebody who's a sort of like a a teacher of copywriters, a coach for copywriters, might be a really nice next step for you for an interview.
0: Thank you so much, Brian Courts. Everybody, over deliver. Go to the Titans Accelerator. Check out Brian, subscribe to his emails, study his weekly emails like I do, create an own folder, give them there, read it over the weekend, because you thank will you. not just get inspiration, you will also see how the master crafts a, a narrative, a, an email that, create, that moves to action. Beautiful, thank you so much. Thank Please you, Simon, very much. Come back soon.
1: Avoid trying to do thousands of things that doesn't work. We have 274 templates for your business success. Reach your ambitious goals with one-on-one